This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Every year, Project Censored publishes a book of 25 stories that the group believes should get more coverage by the media. Project Censored was founded in 1976 at Sonoma State University to draw attention to censorship in the news media and to help students develop media literacy. The group has a weekly radio show and it continues to work with students to research underreported stories. This week's edition of the Orlando Weekly features 10 of the top 25 stories from Project Censored this year. It includes stories about the impact of soaring prescription drug costs on the elderly, accusations that Pfizer bullied South American governments over its COVID-19 contracts, and a wave of wildcat strikes for workers' rights. We're joining me for more, a Project Censored director, Mickey Huff. Mickey, thanks for being here. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity. We're also joined by Associate Director of Project Censored, Andy Lee Roth. Andy, thank you as well. Thank you, Matthew. So, Mickey, let's start with you. Talk to me about the top story uh, about prescription drug costs. Why was that the top of the list? Well, we have a process we go through every year um, is based on critical media literacy education. I'm going to get to that story here just in a second, just so you have a, your listeners have a little idea of a background. Um, we work with professors and students across the country that look at independent news media and stories that may not get coverage in the corporate media, or if and when they do, they may be distorted or not fully covered. Um, our stories are vetted multiple times before they get through our annual ballot. Um, and then they go through a vetting process again with a group of national judges, journalists, professors, experts, etc. cetera. Um, and ultimately we winnow it down out of hundred, a few hundred stories, a couple hundred stories every year that are reviewed. We winnow it down to the what we call the top 25, if, uh, if you will, that goes back to 1976, the top 25 censored stories. And the alt-weeklies, um, Random Length News has been running our top 10 every year, syndicated on the alt-weeklies, and that's why it's in the Orlando Weekly. So we appreciate uh, that it's there, and we appreciate the opportunity. The number one story this year, if anybody's been following this topic, um, we know that there are a number of problems with our healthcare system, or rather a disease management system. This one is prescription drug costs set to become a leading cause for elderly Americans. And that that's due to the soaring prescription drug costs, which have been reported by some, uh, some corporate outlets. Um, but a lot of the details are not. And what we highlight are the independent news reports that get to the bottom of what's actually going on. And the media's role is to tell the public what is happening. And it's really important that people understand uh, the challenges that we have in our medical system. This is just one of them, uh, that prescription costs are set to become a leading cause for death for the elderly due to lack of availability, lack of ability to afford and obtain those drugs. Right. And obviously that is a big deal for Florida, given our our pretty high uh, percentage of of retirees and folks yeah. who, who who move here from other states after retiring. Andy, uh, talk to me a little bit about the definition of an undercovered story. Like what sort of makes the cut as far as uh, the metrics of, you know, how much coverage something gets, you know, whether it should get more, how, how do you decide? Yeah, that's, a, that's always a delicate question. Um, and one of the points we make in this year's book is that a story need not have been completely blockaded to count as what we would consider a censored or underreported news story. So a number of the stories in this year's top 25 list have received some kind of corporate news coverage, but in the process of reviewing those stories, the collective determination of the project, which involves every year 
several hundred people, including students at these college and university campuses, their faculty mentors, and the project's panel of international experts who act as judges who actually uh, vote to rank order the stories every year. We're taking that into account, but um, I'll give you a, an example. One of our top stories this year in this year's list is about the, a, an international seed sovereignty movement that is challenging corporate monopolies that affect farmers uh, and people involved in agriculture around the world. That story has by and large been untold, except in independent news outlets. But in the course of researching the seed sovereignty movement story for inclusion in this year's book, we did find examples of it getting covered in, say, the New York Times magazine. But in the context of an article by a restauranteur whose article was framed not as a, as a kind of a hard news report, if you will, about the seed sovereignty movement, but as a, an example of how people like this restauranteur were creating pathways of their own for producing and distributing food. So that story, it, it's not that there has been no mention whatsoever of the seed sovereignty movement in the New York Times, but the one time that we could find that it was covered in the past year, it was covered in a way that treated it as marginal or treated it as a kind of a fleeting instance of, of newsworthy content, but not something that deserved systematic front page, you know, big headline uh, coverage. So when Project Censored was was founded, part of the goal was to teach students about media literacy or teach them to kind of think critically about how reporting is done. How do you continue that work then, Andy, with, with students now as, as far as vetting stories, uh, submissions that, that some, some of them make it into the top 25 in the book that's published each year? Just talk me through that process. The students are an integral part of that process today, as they have been since the start of the project. Uh, this year's top 25 list is not only the result of intrepid reporting by committed, ethical, independent journalists and the outlets that produce them, but also a group of 209 undergraduate students from college and university campuses across the U.S., and they are the ones who initially identify and conduct the first round of review and vetting of these stories for the quality of the stories, for what, if any, corporate news coverage the story has also received. So, for instance, I just mentioned the Seed Sovereignty Movement story. That was originally reported by Charlie Shield for Deutsche Welle, a German independent news outlet, and it was researched by Taylor Green, a student at San Francisco State University. And for each of the stories that we are identifying and highlighting, the project not only um, sources the story to the reporters and the outlets that broke the story, but we also identify the student researcher and uh, uh, faculty evaluator who helped Project Censored, uh, you know, identify, vet, and ultimately summarize the story's content. So the students continue to be an integral part of the project. Uh, we have what we call our campus affiliates program, and that's a component of the project that I believe makes Project Censored uh, quite distinctive. Uh, when the project began in 1976, there weren't that many media uh, watchdog groups in the United States. Project Censored was one of the very few, a kind of pioneer. Today, there are many more. 
There are many more excellent news watchdog groups, um, but one of the things that continues to make Project Censor distinctive is the extent to which we're focused uh, on hands-on media literacy education, critical media literacy education for the students who who are at the heart of, of what the project's all about. I wanted to ask about another of the stories in the list. This is about Pfizer, and it's about how Pfizer has been interacting with countries in South America and its contract deals to distribute COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, Mickey, there's been quite a bit of reporting in the mainstream media about vaccine access in developing countries. So is that part of this narrative? Yeah, it is. And it's also the case, too, um, Matthew, that this uh, process we do is an annual one. And we'll be researching stories, you know, going back. So for this year, Project Center State of the Free Press 2022, which is the book that comes out the first week of December, those stories are from uh, the previous year's news cycle. So we basically run it from April to April. And then Andy and I and our team of other researchers and authors, Steve Masick and others, put together these stories. And by the time summer comes around, we're basically wrapping up the book and going to publication. And then the book takes a couple of more months to come out. So in those in those uh, spans of time, sometimes more information comes out, sometimes stories are covered. Um, the As Andy and I like to say, the world doesn't stop for us to take its temperature. So by the time sometimes we'll be writing about certain stories, the corporate media eventually will get around to covering some of these. Story number eight, which you mentioned here, is Pfizer bullies South American governments over COVID-19. These are stories that came from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. This is basically the politics of this, right? The politics Mm -hmm. of withholding, the politics of patents around uh, these kinds of really important uh, treatments, drugs. It's not just around vaccines, by the way. This has gone on for for decades, problems around this. Sarah Lazare, writing for In These Times, always does great work. Uh, did a a really great detailed report on the history of Pfizer's opposition to expanding access to poor countries. You know, and this is an issue of equity. This is an issue of, you know, if we're all in this together, how are we uh, fighting against the virus if we're doing it one rich nation at a time? So, and again, back to the issue of the media literacy element or component, uh, we laud the corporate media when they get around to covering these important stories more or the degree to which we think they match their relevance and importance in society. But what we notice is is some stories will languish for years before they get picked up at all. And if and when they do, it may be partial. Um, and Andy and Steve Masick did a great article for Truth Out a couple of weeks ago on how corporate media harms not only through omission but also by distortion. And so these are the kind of stories sometimes, like about Pfizer, for example, where we won't hear maybe some of the seedy or unsavory type details about what's happening with them or vaccine research because people are too busy lauding them for other efforts they're doing for public health. If you're just joining me, my guests are Mickey Huff and Andy Lee Roth uh, with Project Censored. We're talking about the top 25 stories they've identified this year that uh, could have done with more coverage in the mainstream media. You know, Mickey, there's been so many big, complex, fast-moving stories, not just in 2021, but of course 2020 as well. How do you think the media has done, by and large, in kind of reporting these out, giving people the tools they need to understand what's going on? I mean, just back to your comment about the world doesn't stop for you to take its temperature. It just feels like it's been hard to keep up with the flood of big, important news, right? It sure has. And, you know, the cover of this year's book by the artist Anson Stevens Boland kind of reflects that with a Lady Liberty kind of, uh, you know, ankle deep in water with a mask 
in the, in a, in a puddle and trying to push the, the hand of the big clock, right? We're in the present, but we want to return to a sense of normalcy. Like a hundred years ago when Warren Gamaliel Harding talked about how we needed to return to normalcy during a pandemic after World War One. Andy Roth and I are riffing kind of on that, the desire to have things be normal, but, but what was normal and were things fine before COVID hit? And the answer is clearly no. And Project Censored Stories have outlined the many challenges and problems we've faced for a long time. We've also, however, proposed a lot of solutions and looked at solutions journalism, which is something corporate media don't do very well either. Um, and, you know, this year's foreword was written by the Society of Professional Journalists Ethics Chair, Danielle McLean, that rightly points out uh, in the, the introduction to the book that, um, you know, journalism as an industry is falling down on the job. McLean writes that that industry needs to change, that they need to stop chasing ratings and meaningless clickbait headlines and stop treating politics like celebrity gossip and elections like popularity polls. So we really need fundamental changes in media to be community-based, bottom-up, and journalism that's of, by, and for the people, not top-down as we're seeing as Fewer and fewer um, owners of the media uh, are in our media ecosystem. Hedge funds are buying up all kinds of papers, downsizing them, shutting them down. Uh, they're not able to cover the more and more complicated issues in a fast-paced world, Matthew, like you just said. How do we keep up with it? Well, we need a vibrant free press to do that. And part of what Project Censor does is both critical and affirmative, as Andy and I always say. We critique the corporate media when they don't do the job they need to do in the public interest, but we affirm the independent press that does the very important uh, work of reporting to the public the things we need to know all the time, and in fact, do it on more under more challenging situations because independent and alternative outlets have fewer, fewer reporters, they have less access to budgets or resources. And so what we do at Project Censored is in addition to teaching people about critical media literacy and being media literate, we also hope that we are able to re-platform and put out into society what we find to be some of the most important stories from the last year that people may have missed. Mm -hmm. I guess clickbait is one thing, but there's also the ongoing conversation about how do you pay for journalism? How do you pay journalists? How do you make sure that newsrooms, whether it's an independent newsroom, whether it's a corporate newsroom, you know, has the resources to do the, the work that's important, right? We need robust public funding. In last year's censored book, we had a piece by Craig Aaron from Free Press and Victor Picard of the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School that talks about what a robust stimulus looks like for journalism. Um, you can't have democracy without journalism, riffing on Victor Picard's last book title. Um, and we need to fund it. And they're talking about to the tune of billions of dollars, not just tens or hundreds of millions. At a conservative estimate, they're talking three to four billion dollars for a public interest media infrastructure to be sustainable. Long term, they're talking 20 to 30 billion dollars. That's on scale with what we see per capita in Europe and in parts of Asia and other parts of the world. So it is not that this is not a possible thing to do. It, it's not even because we can't afford to do it. It's a political question and the lack of political will of the funding of journalism in the public interest. And unfortunately, Matthew, that's why organizations like ours at Project Censored are necessary. Andy, I want to come back to the students that you work with for a moment, and I want to get your take on on student media literacy now, because there are quite a few challenges to navigating this media landscape we're in. Right, the the media itself has changed, both in the way people, you know, what they consume, how they get their news, where they get it from. So, what's your sense of of how media literate 
students are sort of coming up through colleges now and, and what work needs to be done to give them the tools they need to you know, be the next generation of, of uh, investigative reporters or working at a daily paper or a radio station or a TV station or wherever it may be? This is one area of the project where I'm um, actually significantly hopeful and I think without being kind of uh, naively uh, optimistic either. The students who come up in the courses uh, that faculty teach around the country at these, at these campuses that are in our campus affiliates or program, these students uh, don't necessarily come with an already developed interest in politics or journalism or the politics of news. But what you see developing, what I've seen in courses I've taught at a variety of institutions are that students are hungry, I think, to make a difference. And the research that the opportunities that the project provides give them a platform for that. And it's especially important because they're working on an assignment that is not just going to be confined to the four walls of the classroom, right? And when a student was researching a story uh, that could become a top 25 story in one of my introduction to sociology classes. Um, they knew that in addition to me reading it as the professor of the course, that if, if they did a good job on that story and the research panned out, that that story would be posted on the project's website. It might ultimately make the top 25 list and therefore would be published in the next censored yearbook. And that motivates the student's effort uh, in a way that's very meaningful, um, both in terms of the students, the, the development of their critical thinking and media literacy skills, but also for that student as someone who's going to go back to their household, go back to their community and talk about these issues, talk about the specific, the specific issues that were pertinent to their, the story they researched, but also the bigger picture of um, the kinds of challenges we face. They, when a student engages in this kind of hands-on critical media literacy training, it's not just me, their professor, saying corporate media does a bad job of covering systemic social problems. The student has actually kind of witnessed and, and seen for themselves how that's true in the concrete context of the particular story they were researching. And I think that is I don't want to paint a, a, you know, an overly optimistic picture, but for many of the students in many of the courses where Project Censored is part of the curriculum, that kind of transformation happens. And whether those students go on to become reporters, journalists themselves or not, they're going to go forward with a sensibility for how to make sense of a story, how to unpack what's not being said in the story, right? what's missing from the story in a way that they'll be more engaged and uh, citizens and, and less likely to be the, you know, the person we're all afraid of who's, you know, just using their social media account to promote all kinds of disinformation and misinformation. So working with the students is, as I say, a source of great optimism for me. And one of the things I think that just powers um, what the project is doing. Mickey, is that kind of, I guess, a, a risk to the sort of information landscape we're in that wouldn't have been around in, say, 1976, that you can get information from anywhere now and it's it's in your face kind of instantly. And if you're turned off, uh, you know, the, the mainstream media, you may just get, end up in a rabbit hole where 
it's really hard to verify anything. Yeah, that's part of the challenge. You know, when Carl Jensen started the project, there were three networks and public television, radio. There were a lot more daily newspapers. But, you know, with the 80s, you know, came cable and the 90s, we in 2000s, the internet. At the same time, though, we also saw a conglomerate rising, like fewer companies owning more of the media. Uh, the Ben Bigdikian warned about in the early 1980s media monopoly, and then uh, the Clinton administration Telecom Act that allowed more companies, you know, to own more and more. So you end up with fewer companies owning more because they're allowed to own more. And even though we have, you know, like you just said, we have access to so more information than any generation has ever had, you know, before in human history. But that doesn't necessarily mean we know what to do with it. You said. <laughs> You know, sometimes that's too much information and we get lost in this sea of information with a paucity of understanding about what it means. That's why we got to go back to critical media literacy education and the tenets of that, which is teaching people how to think critically about information and vet information they see, not to teach them what to think or tell them what they, they're supposed to think about it. That also means, you know, having to make some tough decisions. We criticize the corporate media, but that doesn't mean they never report well. That doesn't mean the Washington Post doesn't have a great expose on the January 6th Capitol incident, for example, as Andy recently wrote about. But then you flip it around and look at the way that they cover other things like the billionaire class or their own owner, Jeff Bezos, the Post is deplorable. So it's not one source is is great or terrible. It's we have to teach people to understand that each source, each story, each reporter needs to actually be scrutinized and vetted, right? And that takes time and commitment. So we all need to kind of slow down a little bit in the way that we get our information and not consume it like so much junk food, right? And we need to be deliberate about where we get our information. We need to ask important questions about why does this platform want me to know this? What information is being omitted, what stories or topics are they ignoring while covering other, you know, kind of tripe and gossip? Well, we do all of that in our book each year with news abuse, junk food news. We even highlight media organizations we think are doing a great job in media democracy in action as a way of modeling for the reader, for the student, for the general public, if you will, how they can make steps or make decisions in their own lives to put themselves in their own sort of informational driver's seat, choosing the paths of information that best fit um, their lives, not fit their confirmation bias, but best fit what they need for their communities. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy, right? That's, that's not an easy thing for us to do as individuals. And frankly, it's, it's not an easy thing to teach, but I have to admit it's, it's easier to try to tell people <laughs> how to go about doing those things than actually get them really doing them on the daily as part of their information habits. Well, I've been speaking with Mickey Huff. He is the director of Project Censored. Mickey, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And also joining us, Andy Lee Roth. He is the associate director of Project Censored. Andy, thanks as well. Thank you. And you can find a link to Project Censored and the Orlando Weekly's article about this year's list of stories on our website, wmfe.org. Up next, oceanographer Sylvia Earle says despite environmental challenges, there's still a lot people can do individually to protect and conserve the oceans. We'll have that conversation after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Sylvia Earle has spent decades exploring the oceans, including stints living underwater. The 86-year-old oceanographer and National Geographic explorer still likes to dive whenever she can. She says explorers like her have only glimpsed about 5% of the oceans, and the majority of the ocean floor remains unmapped. Earl has a new book out. It's called Ocean, a Global Odyssey. 
She says despite environmental challenges, there's much we can do individually to protect and conserve the ocean. I spoke to her about the book and her life of undersea adventure. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be part of the action. (laughs) (laughs) All right. First of all, congratulations on the book. It's a it's a beautiful collection of photography and, and writing. Uh, what was your goal in, in putting this together? To tell the story of the ocean based on not just my lifetime of exploring and getting to know the ocean from the inside out using conventional diving techniques, but also rather unconventional ones, living underwater 10 times using dozens of little submarines but to share the stories and the insights gained over really all preceding history, but especially in the last few decades, the rate of, of exploration and knowledge is really accelerating just in time. So the stories of other explorers, scientists, individuals who are making a difference, uh, first by really looking at the ocean and ask, trying to answer to the best of our collective ability, questions that a kid might ask, like, where did all that water come from? Mm -hmm. Why is it salty? (laughs) And tell me about currents in the ocean and who lives there. And finally, to come to some of the big questions that are now haunting us is, like, why should I care about the ocean? And if the ocean is in trouble, what does that mean? What can I do to turn things around? Mm So the way the book is constructed thanks to the mighty editors at the National Geographic that there are stories within stories like you can pick the book up almost anywhere a little 500 word bites or thousand word essays with a beginning a middle and a conclusion that that makes it okay to pick the book up almost anywhere anytime and dive in and find something that you might find of of interest, coupled mm-hmm. with incredible pictures, again, that could not have existed when I was a kid. We now have photography, digital photography, photography that you can take pictures literally almost in the dark with the sensitivity of technologies now that make that possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm thrilled to be able to share the view. It's not just my view. It's assembling the best information that we could bring together and put, (laughs) I mean, it seems like a really big book, but it's a really big topic Hmm. with lots of little pieces that I hope people will will savor. Just thinking about living uh, under the ocean, as you referred to, there's a lot of, I guess, interest right now in in space exploration and, and living in space and maybe getting further out into space. But do you feel like there should be more emphasis on exploring what's uh, under the ocean as well? Absolutely, and also caring for it. The more we explore the ocean, the greater the awareness of of what a miracle it is that Earth exists at all, and that it does exist as it does, and that we exist as we do because of this fabric of interlocked life that creates the chemistry of the planet that's just right for us, and life as we know it, in, in a planet, in a, in a universe, even in our own solar system, good luck with setting up housekeeping on Mars. And I do think that we can technologically and understanding the, the basic life support needs 
send a few people who could live for a while on another planet. And, <laughs> but, you know, here we've got a built-in life support system. And it, it exists nowhere else in the universe. There are no elephants except here on Earth. <laughs> no humans except here on Earth. We are the product, the distillation of all preceding life on Earth. And here we are, endowed with this amazing gift of knowledge, built of generations, hundreds, thousands of generations of, of humans using their mighty brains to gather information, and not just use it on that, in that generation, but passing it along, storing that knowledge, so that every generation now gets a jump start on the previous one especially now because we're connected in such a comprehensive way that was not possible when I was a child. The children of today are the beneficiaries of this greatest era of learning and discovery in all of human history. Pieces of the puzzle are coming together faster than ever, and we still have much to learn. I mean, most of the ocean is still unexplored. We've mm -hmm. only seen maybe 5% of it. We've only mapped maybe 15% of the ocean floor. <laughs> we, we, we could look at the surface and think we know the ocean. That's the, just the top of this place where most of life on Earth actually lives. Mm -hmm. And the ability to know what we don't know is a great starting place to cause us to respect the magnitude of what we don't know and take care of this vast system Call it the precautionary principle, if you will, but whatever it is, we know that the ocean keeps us alive. Now we have to return the favor and keep the ocean alive. How, how often do you get to dive these days? Huh. Well, my last underwater experience was in the Azores, and that was in August. You know, the, this virus has trimmed my flippers a bit. <laughs> and, and as a consequence, I got to write the book. <laughs> I spent more than a year just hunkered down without getting out into the ocean. I mean, before the, the pandemic, the last place I was able to go splash around was in the Seychelles, in the Indian Ocean, mm -hmm. you know, half a world away from where I am now in California. I'm accustomed to being in the ocean somewhere for some period of time, for, you know, at least once a month. And having expeditions to explore and share the view of what's happening underwater with with people all over the world to to try to foster caring with a network of protected areas, hope spots, and to work with other organizations who are similarly trying to embrace the ocean and all of the living world with care. Mm -hmm. The National Geographic's Pristine Seas project is really been out there trying to wake people up about why the ocean matters and what we can do to embrace it with care. Just that's what we're doing with Mission Blue, what Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Fund, you know, hundreds of organizations now pulling together. It, it's important. We know that collaboration, cooperation is what makes the world thrive in a peaceful, positive way. And I'm so excited to be witnessing this surge of awareness, why nature matters, why old-growth forests mm -hmm. are really important to protect, 
why old growth systems in the ocean, and they're not talking about just thousands of years, but like the the manganese nodules in the mm. deep sea represent millions of years of individual chunks of living rocks <laughs> develop an ecosystem that is part of what secures our our safety, mm-hmm. our prosperity, a planet that works in our favor. I wanted to ask you, it's easy to read these headlines about uh, environmental challenges facing the oceans and other ecosystems and get overwhelmed, but what can people do to take action individually? What can they do to help protect the ocean? <laughs> first, look in the mirror. That's the first individual action everybody should take. You know, who are you? What do you have? What, what have you got? Do you have a way with words? Do you have a way with kids? Do you have any power? Are you a mayor? Are you a CEO? A leader of a country or your family? Whoever, what have you got that you can do to go from where we are to get to a better place? Get up to speed with what the problems are. Figure out, well, I can do something about this. I can choose, no matter how much power you've got, you can choose to say, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to give bluefin tuna a pass because mm-hmm. I know, having looked maybe in the ocean odyssey or maybe elsewhere, that we need wildlife in the ocean to prosper. And some people will need to eat the creatures of the sea for sustenance, but for most of us, it's a choice. And we are degrading the health of the ocean by the large scale, especially the high seas, industrial scale, taking of squid and fish and shrimp and krill by the ton and not really understanding the big bite we're taking out of the integrity of these closely knit systems that are like our safety net. They keep us alive in a universe that's not really very friendly to the likes of us. And and know that we have plenty of choices about what to eat. (laughs) And even at the climate conference in Glasgow, agriculture, our food habits, our focus on taking ocean wildlife on a large percentage, larger than we really need, of eating animals. People will, of course, throughout all history, we have eaten and will continue to eat some animals, but we've gone overboard with with taking so much and and uh, giving so much of the land and sea to to either grow or to extract animals for food with a big carbon Mm -hmm. footprint. And that was headline news, blue carbon, Mm -hmm. uh, animal carbon. We can do better by individual choices times the nearly 8 billion of us. (laughs) I mean, every bite we take matters. Mm -hmm. We should know that and be mindful with our everyday decisions, but we can do more. Like, (laughs) I don't know. There's a kid in Texas who saw all the trash on the beaches, and she did not ask anybody. She didn't tell anybody. She just went out and started picking it up because she could, and she did. And others started following her. And this was at about the time that the great ocean cleanups began, Mm -hmm. to be able to use your individual choice. I'm going to give back. I'm going to take back some of what we humans have done to trash the planet. I'm going to make a commitment to do my part, not to, to, to add to the collection of stuff that's out there in the ocean, harming wildlife, harming the, the great 
nutrient cycles in the ocean, really damaging the very systems that keep us, keep me, keep you, all of us alive. Once you know you can do something, you can care, you, you might know and not care, but what has been lacking until right about now is understanding the nature of why the ocean matters, why mm-hmm. nature matters, not just because nature is beautiful and inspires us, but because it keeps us alive. All of the natural systems, get to know it. Get to know the little creatures in your backyard. And certainly, if you haven't already taken the plunge, do so. Dive in. Get to know the blue part of the planet. Mm. You'll never regret it. Well, uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle, um, congratulations again on the book, and thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I thank you for having me on board. All right. Take care. Thank you. Sylvia Earle's new book is called Ocean, A Global Odyssey. Still to come, 19-year-old Florida rapper Reverse won the title of Best Spanish Language Freestyler in the U.S. in September. Now he's headed to Chile for the international final. That conversation after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The national champion for the Red Bull Bataya, the Spanish-language freestyle rap battle competition, is a 19-year-old Cuban who lives in West Palm Beach. Reverse now heads to Chile for the Red Bull Bataya International Final, that's on December 11th, and the chance to be crowned the best Spanish-speaking freestyler in the world. I talked to him last month about the world of competitive freestyling. Thanks so much for joining me. Mm, Thank you. Congratulations on winning the US title. How does that feel? That feels great. Sometimes I still don't believe it, but yeah, it feels great. Mm -hmm. I worked really hard for it, and I don't know, at the end things got easy, and I was able to do it. And you took that title from somebody who'd had that for two years, is that right? Yes, from YRC, the Puerto Rican champion. Right, so some pretty tough competition, it seems like. Yep, he's even an international freestyler. So for people who aren't really familiar with how freestyle rap battle works, can you just kind of explain the format? Okay, so you basically have to improvise, you have to rhyme, you have to rap, you don't know what you're going to say. It's two persons, two people against each other. Uh, if you ever have seen Eight Miles, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say it's a player one versus player two. Um, sometimes you guys get like words or objects or different things. So you guys can improvise about that. So you guys can show that you guys are actually improvising and that's it. The one who convinces the judges that wins, wins. Goes to the next round. So do they give you a little bit of information before so you can kind of do a wee bit of preparation or is it basically just here's a beat, go for it? Yeah, here's the beat, go for it. Mm-hmm. How do you rehearse for that then? How do you, how do you prepare? You don't. Um, I mean, in my case, uh, I think uh, you. I, I, I'm one of those persons that believes that the most naturally comes the best, you know. But you actually practice improvising. You know, you you rap. Uh, in my case, I go with my crew, with my friends. I, I practice freestyling, you know? And then you develop this mental agility. And the more you, the more you develop it, the better the better you are. Um, but yeah, you don't really prepare as a, you know, study something for it because, you know, it's freestyle. It's at the moment. Mm-hmm. And are you allowed to bring some kind of material, like some props with you? I was watching uh, one video. I, th- I think it was the U.S. finals where... You had like some clothes and sort of shoes on the on the stage as well. Can you tell me a bit about what was going on there? 
Okay, that was a really crazy moment that had never happened ever in any final. Mm-hmm. So let's say they both they gave us both uh, objects to improvise, right? In these little boxes, and it was one minute each one. Okay, each one had to wrap one minute. Right. But I didn't understand that. I I thought it was uh, back and forth, you know. So my mm-hmm. turn was gonna be right away. So I opened my box and I saw the objects when I wasn't supposed to, because I didn't know it was one minute. After that, you know, the host told me, "No, close. It's not your turn." But you know, I already saw them, so I already had time to think. So then I was like, you know what? I saw the objects by accident. I don't want to rap like that because that's not really freestyle. I'm not improvising. So I want the people from the crowd to throw me objects and I will improvise with those objects. So that's why people throw me shoes, phones, and all those stuff. And I improvise it with that thing because that's the only thing that I saw that was going to be fair after I saw the objects by accident. Mm-hmm. What about the rules for when your opponent is rapping? Like what, what are you allowed to do and what aren't you allowed to do? You aren't allowed to speak clearly. You aren't allowed to to do a lot of stuff. You know, some people cross the line sometimes, you know. You're really not allowed to touch them either, but people touch them. Right. Um, uh, you know, the, most, the best things are like you can talk, you can touch them, and you can distract them. But people most of the time cross more than one of those lines. Mm-hmm. When So when your opponent is rapping, are you kind of like, thinking like what am i going to be doing are you sort of coming up with stuff that you're going to be doing when it's your turn or are you just sort of taking it all in like what's going through your mind when that's that's going on i think that depends on the person you know some people use that time to think what can i tell him um i like to hear whatever my opponent tells me and use it against them right that's my strategy every time i go to a freestyle battle for example if someone is rapping and they mention a movie that i know then I think about the movie that they just mentioned and I try to give them a rhyme that's better than the one that they gave me about that same movie, mm-hmm. you know? So I'll just try to use whatever they told me to uh, give it back to them and create that, you know, like answer punchline that people enjoy. Mm-hmm. How did you get into this? Like, did you did you start, you mentioned 8 Mile at the start and the, the kind of scenes of, of rap battles there. Like, was that what like what school was like for you did you sort of do that when you're off time like how'd you get into this i started rapping two years ago only i i when i was uh, a kid my parents are no not they're not musicians but my uncle is my dad is musician my mom sings you know so my whole family was linked to music um i started listening to hip-hop when i was like eight years old uh, I saw eight miles when I was like nine years old, or eight years old around that time. And, you know, I really like, you know, the confrontation that you see in those rap battles, but I never knew that they did that in real life. So when I was like 17, 18, I was getting out of a soccer match and I saw these people rapping, you know, outside of the field. And I tried, I liked it. And after that, I just went one day and that's it thinking about the confrontation and, and also you know what you see in these in these competitions i mean it seems like you're, you you have to get really into it right you're sort of getting literally getting in your opponent's face you're uh you know you're trying to come up with ways to get the better of your opponent 
But then you know, what's it like afterwards? Is it kind of hard to come down from that? Because it must be a bit of an adrenaline rush. No, it is. It is. It's the biggest adrenaline rush I have ever felt. And I used to play soccer. Mm-hmm. It is because you're in a risk, constantly in a risk, you know, under pressure, cameras. A lot of people see it. And, you know, if the person makes you look bad, you look bad in front of 10,000 people, you know? So it's a, yeah, it is an adrenaline rush, and it is a confrontation. It's it's really hard. Most people retire from freestyle battles after some years because it's really a mental pressure. Mm-hmm. And then you know, at the end of it, you you know, there's a handshake. You you seem like you're you you kind of able to maintain some equilibrium and stay on friendly terms. But is the rap battle scene pretty tight? Like, a are people friendly, or are you always just kind of thinking, how am I going to get the better of these folks next time I see them on the on the stage? No, you know, uh, the freestyle community between the freestylers, it's really nice, you know? It's like boxing matches. You can destroy each other on the, on the stage, but after that, yeah, we are our friends and we all go for the same side. Um, the thing that's kind of toxic is the community, you know, like the fans. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are the one that want to see, you know, the world in fire. Sometimes they're the one that try to go put people against each other. But the community between freestylers is all good. Like, the handshakes and everything, it's all real. Like, we are not enemies. It's just we are two characters in stage, but we don't... For example, nobody tries to say personal rhymes about your dad if your dad has something. You know, it's just, <laughs> right. it's just on the stage. You know, it's a show at the end. And what about um, the freestyle scene in other countries? Like, is there a big difference between what you hear on stage in the United States and say, you know, Chile or, or Spain or, you know, Venezuela or wherever it may be? It is, it is, there is. For example, Spain is the most um, developed freestyle scene in the world. And I can tell you that someone that loses in the first round in the Spain Red Bull can win the Red Bull in here. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it is people there are really developed in freestyle. One of the things that I try to do is I try to compare myself to the freestyle outside of the U.S. because I think when I started rapping here, most people, you know, they did a kind a type of freestyle that we you only see here in the U.S. But people outside of here don't understand it really well, so or or don't really you know appreciate it. So it's really hard to win if you practice that. So I always tried to make my style like, you know, for everyone. So if I ever got out of here, I, you know, I had a chance to stand against other people so people will understand what I'm doing. What about English language too? Do you rap in English as well? Yeah, I kind of. It's not the same. I'm not as fluid, but I can, yeah. Do you ever throw some English into your Spanish battles as well? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I liked it because, you know, Knowing two languages gives you more possibilities to rhyme and to structure. Uh, for example, you can rhyme freestyle with first class and this track. And that's, you know, everybody knows what those things are and you can use it to rhyme. So when it comes to the competition in Chile, do you know who you're going to be up against there? Yeah, I know uh, until now all the champions, but I don't really know who I'm going to get in the first round, you know. I don't really... It depends on how the things go and also who I pick. And I don't really have an opponent in mind. Mm-hmm. So, but are you, are you like studying tapes to sort of see what they might come up with and kind of thinking about how that might go? 
No, I'm not. I'm not starting because I, I have a philosophy about freestyle that I think the most not the best, the most natural you can be out there, the better it's gonna go. You know, because at the end, that's what you're looking for: freestyle. You know, something that's at the moment, not something you plan. You said a couple of moments ago that a lot of freestylers retire after a, a little while uh, on the scene because it's so like taxing. So, how long do you think you're going to be doing this for? Until next year, probably. Uh huh. I I do music. Um, my, the love of my life is music. I have been making songs. I think my songs are better than my freestyle. You know, it's just that in the music industry, it's really hard to get yourself known by people. You know, so what I'm trying to do is build up that community, that fans, those fans for, from freestyle, and then move to the music industry next year. Is there much of a, a crossover? Like, do you feel like getting your name out there in this format is going to bring some fans across to your music as well? Yeah, it has already done it. It had already done it. Where can people go see this? Like, say you're from West Palm, but, you know, say if you're in the Orlando area or somewhere else in Florida, like, are there venues where you can regularly take in some freestyle rap if you want to? Okay, so if you're in Miami, you can go to Miami Freestyle League. They have an Instagram page. You can look them up. They do all month one or two competitions with cash for the winner with different trips for the winner, studio sessions, different stuff. Uh, they also do regional tournaments that if you win, you can go to the nationals because Red Bull is not the only national competition in the USA. Uh, you can go to Supermacia, to God Level, um, and Gold Battle, the different competition and the same Red Bull. If you're in Orlando, you can participate in Indigo. That's a competition that's in Orlando. And those are the two main here in Florida. Well, Reverse, good luck for the upcoming uh, World Championship in Chile and thanks so much for uh, talking a little bit about the work you do and your uh, experience with freestyle rap battling. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Thank you for the time. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.